This is Booch News with Ian Griffin, a podcast all about kombucha. So I'm on the phone with Adam Vanny of Jar Kombucha, whose company is located at the moment in London, but is about to make an exciting move to Belgium. Hi, hi Adam. How are you? Hey, good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's great. You know, as I said a second ago, you're um, in an interesting position, both because you founded Jar Kombucha a couple of years ago in London, were acquired by the Belgian brewery, uh, I believe that Duval Mosgat, and are now yeah. moving your operations to Belgium. What's the story behind that? Um, it's kind of a long story, but um, in from summer 2018, um, or maybe more like spring 2018, until fall of 2018, we were looking for investment for JAR. Um, we realized that we'd taken it to a point um, where we needed some money in order to scale up um, and also some expertise in terms of brewing, distribution, logistical support, uh, stuff like that. So um, we'd been in contact with, with various uh, individual investors, high net worth um, uh, corporations. Uh, we met with dozens of different people, and um, it was Duval Mortgat who uh, we connected with the most. Um, and they just seemed like a logical fit for us. Uh, Duval has been around for 150 years. They're a family-run family of breweries um, based in Belgium. And they had been looking into the world of, uh, of non-alcoholic uh, drinks for some time. They realized that there was a growth in that market. And so it kind of was a perfect synergy between the two brands. Um, you know, our... Our sort of hope, which has now come to fruition, um, was that we would be able to eventually use their uh, technical uh, expertise to scale up our brewing, um, to make it, I guess, more technically um, savvy than what we were currently doing at the time, and also to be able to gain distribution across Europe, because uh, at the time, and even more so now, the market in the UK was very, very saturated. Maybe not as saturated as that of California or other parts of the States, but certainly within London, um, you know, nowadays there's probably 35 different brands, whereas when we started there were three or four. So um, it sort of worked in our favor to, uh, to, to partner with somebody like that and, uh, and take it to the next level. Now, we had always planned to move uh, production to Belgium. Um, the idea was that we would be able to uh, utilize their Leafman's beer facility. Leafman's is um, one of their breweries that they own. They're famous for their sour beer. And that particular brewery has been around since the 1500s. It's amazing, an amazing place. And they had a, a quite a big warehouse space there where they had mentioned previously that um, they could you know, build a jar brewery. So we set out to do that, um, and it had been in the works for several months. Um, and actually, we started producing there I believe the first run was in February, so right before the coronavirus uh, hit. And uh, it was actually really good timing because we were already decommissioning our brewery in London, um, and the new brewery um, was online. And that brewery can, can function with a very, very small team because most of it is completely automated. So that allowed us to sort of to take the pressure off brewing and production um, and focus more on um, expanding distribution um, and decommissioning the, the current site in London. So 
that's sort of where we're at now. We're still producing in Belgium. Um, I think this week actually we're having about 2,000 or 3,000 cases of our ginger sent over. It's the first uh, official run from Belgium that will be sold in the UK. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're really excited about that. And also a quick little plug, we did a, um, a small run of jar cans, which you're the first person I'm announcing that with. Actually, we haven't told anybody. Uh, and yeah. we have those now in the country. So we're going to start seeding those in the market. Um, I think we've got a few thousand cases of some raspberry cans. So we're going to see how those perform and, and whether we're going to make that into a bigger um, skew. We're not sure yet. But that's sort of a, the, the history of the partnership with Duval and, and where we're at right now. Yeah, that's uh, – well, I, I mean, obviously – it makes sense, obviously, given that you're uh, you're now um, partnering with a Belgian company. I know Belgium is one of the homes of beer. Like you said, this brewery that you're in has been around for quite a few hundred years, so there's a lot of history there. Um, but I, I wanted to dig down a little bit. You, so you're producing in Belgium, but you did say the 3,000 cases of ginger are coming and the cans are coming to the U.K., so that that needs what the refrigeration uh, to transport them by ferry or something like that. I mean, what are the logistics there to get the beer into the UK? So um, for jar, and I mean, this is something we we uh, we speak about regularly um, when we have the opportunity. But we decided um, a couple years ago to begin filtering our kombucha, and uh, that allows us to be ambient. And the main reason we did that was because we were concerned with the way the industry was going in terms of alcohol levels of kombucha. Um, we'd seen what happened in 2010 in the States where all kombucha was removed from the shelves for three to six months. 80% of the brands went bust at the time. The other ones that, that didn't reformulated recipes, including GTs. He now has the, uh, his Synergy line as well as his Classic line. And um, we realized after doing some independent testing of different brands in the market that there were elevated uh, alcohol levels and that at some point there's going to be a crackdown. So we started investigating various methods of filtration. Um, we never had any issues with our kombucha being alcoholic when it was sent out. The problem, though, is when various stockists store it in certain ways, and it's difficult to um, keep a close eye on everybody's um, storage of your product. So even if someone says they're refrigerating it, they might be storing it at 10 degrees or above Celsius, that is, um, which will still lead to secondary fermentation. So we started filtering. We started doing some blind taste testing. We finally settled on a method of filtration that allowed us to keep the flavor that we wanted while removing all of the yeast and some of the bacteria. And that essentially allows us to transport the kombucha um, across Europe um, without any kind of refrigeration. And for instance, in, <clears throat> in the UK in particular, there's really not much refrigerated transport nationally. And throughout Europe, it's sort of the same thing. There's just not those, um, those logistical or distribution networks built yet like there are in the States. So in order to grow um, at the rate that we needed to, we had to, um, we had to sort of take that step. <clears throat> so that's a long-winded way of answering um, oh. by saying that we actually don't need it refrigerated. We simply put it on, um, on trucks that um, I think, I guess, go through the, um, through the tunnel, uh, uh, the Euro tunnel, and make their way to uh, the UK, where we drop them off at a uh, consolidate, consolidation warehouse um, that then sends it out to our wholesalers. 
Oh, okay. So this is just to be clear. Then you're not um, you're still making what you could call authentic kombucha. It's not pasteurized, although you've filtered to remove some of the bacteria and all of the yeast. It would still have those benefits that people look for in, you know, kombucha that's that sort of uh, was fermented naturally, if you want to say that, versus pasteurized. For sure. Yeah, the way that we ferment kombucha is still identical um, to how we, you know, would do it at home. Um, we ferment with four ingredients, tea, water, sugar, and a SCOBY. <clears throat> at an industrial level or commercial scale, this is what most kombucha breweries do, but they don't really talk about is that um, we use a liquid version of the SCOBY. So essentially, we create a starter liquid that is particularly rich in bacteria and yeast rather than utilizing the cellulose. So instead of using the cellulose pellicle, um, as it's called, which is commonly referred to as the SCOBY, we do that in a liquid form, which is still technically a SCOBY, and actually under a microscope you would find has more bacteria in it than a, than a standard pellicle would have. So we use those four ingredients and we ferment for uh, anywhere from seven to 10 days. Um, and uh, we do it, you know, a classic ferment, but we do it in a closed environment. So we don't do um, sort of an open top ferment anymore. We have a fully automated system where we control the level of oxygenation. We control the level of heating and cooling. And um, we have the ability to apply pressure at different points, which can optimize acetic acid or gluconic acid, keep the ethanol levels down, um, and allow us to come up with the flavor profile that we want consistently every single time. So that's sort of the, um, the sort of futuristic way of, of making kombucha, but it's still utilizing the same ingredients. And then the final product um, contains all of the acetic acid uh, that is actually proven to be good for your gut. So based on all of the research that we've done, and this comes from consulting with various microbiologists, um, studying every single, you know, piece of literature we could find about kombucha, um, there actually aren't any, um, <clears throat> there's no scientific research to support the idea that the bacteria found in kombucha actually has a benefit for your gut. And that's mainly because <clears throat> most of that bacteria is killed by your stomach acid before it reaches your microbiome. And secondly, even if that bacteria did survive um, the acidity of your stomach, it would really have to be in the parts per billion. When, <clears throat> with regards to kombucha per bottle, we're talking about 50,000 CFUs, you know. Um, unless you're adding powdered probiotics to your final product, which I think many of the brands, particularly, particularly in the States, are doing now. So it's very difficult to, um, to, to accurately claim that the bacteria does anything. But what there is evidence to support is that you have the antioxidants from the tea, um, if you're making it with green tea, black tea, oolong tea, it all contains antioxidants, which are great for your immune system. In addition to that, um, acetic acid, which is an amazing compound that does support the growth of good bacteria in your gut while killing bad bacteria. Um, it can kill E. coli and salmonella and even bad yeast such as candida. So, in fact, kombucha is still good for you even if you filter it, but because of the acids produced by the bacteria rather than the bacteria themselves. Um, so that's yeah. sorry, another long-winded answer. No, that's great, Adam. No, I, I, I actually would let people know that it, this will be uh, a podcast on Booch News. And I did cover your great videos with the, uh, the guy from My Leaf Tea, and the one uh, I posted on my second was where you covered that very point. 
uh, about the antioxidant benefits and acetic acid. And, and also I have to compliment you on the reason I sort of, I knew about you know, Jar Kombucha like one of the many brands, but when I saw your uh, video uh, with my leaf where you go through your brewing process in, uh, in incredible detail, I, I, I wanted to compliment you on kind of not being, you know, super paranoid kind of, if you, that's the word, uh, about your commercial process because, um, you know, that's of use, I think, for other people, other brewers or other people who are general, you know, consumers of kombucha to know that you are applying, uh, you know, the science. But I wanted to move on. This is, that's been very interesting to hear about the, the biology and the chemistry of kombucha. I, I have a question about your decision to relocate to Belgium. And as we were talking about, mm-hmm. as people know I'm from England originally, even though I haven't lived there 40 years. So did you consider in the, like you say, you're importing it from Europe to UK, anything about Brexit? Would the changes in the British government's membership of the EU, do you think that's going to have an impact or, or, or not? So uh, that's a good question. And it's not really something that we considered as a reason for relocating to Belgium, but actually seems as though it may work in our favor. Um, I mean, I don't really know the details um, around the political situation when it comes to Brexit, but it certainly um, it makes sense to me that it would be easier to distribute into mainland Europe from Belgium than it would be from the UK, especially with export or import tariffs or duties, <clears throat> depending on what the deal ends up being. Um, so it actually seems to work in our favor. And, and our goal was always to spread jar across Europe rather than just the UK. The UK market is reasonably small. And I think there's um, significant potential for growth in markets such as the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Germany, Spain, um, among others. So uh, this did seem to work out in our favor um, with regards to relocating. That, well, that certainly is very, yeah, that's very well put because it sounds like at the moment when you've started in London, so your market, like you say, you're importing cases from Belgium to London to UK right now. But mm-hmm. what you're saying is the future, you believe, is in mainland, which is obviously a much huge population, about 60 million in the British Isles and, I don't know, mm-hmm. many times that across Europe. Um, where, so mm-hmm. just to sort of bring this to wrap up then, I mean, you've been involved with the kombucha industry originally from the United States, but you started the brewery in London, now you're moving to Belgium. Um, where do you think, like if you were to look into a crystal ball, kombucha could be in, say, I don't know, pick a time frame, maybe a couple of years, five years. Uh, like you said, it came from uh, almost nothing when you founded uh, Jar Kombucha in the UK. There was only three or four brands. There's now over 30, say, in London. Where do you see the future in, in terms of the market and, and how people you know, in the, in the populations of the European mm-hmm. countries would, would uh, you know, yeah, would find kombucha. I think it really depends on the market. I mean, from, it's funny because I often, along with my, um, my colleagues and my co-founders and, and other friends who drink a lot of kombucha, often get stuck in this mentality that, that everybody knows kombucha, that kombucha is just something that everybody drinks. But to be completely honest, you know, a, a very small percentage of the British population even know what the word kombucha means. So, um, but from my perspective, in my sort of limited scope of, um, of 
sort of understanding about, about the market is that I think kombucha is going to split into many different spaces. It's going to adapt to different, um, different categories. For instance, I think there's probably going to end up being super premium, um, uh, you know, rare tea-based um, kombucha that will be sold in a champagne bottle, and you'll be able to get it in fancy restaurants and, you know, fancy bars. Um, I think kombucha is going to start popping up in more and more cocktails. Um, you're going to see it in more and more, uh, you know, restaurants, pubs, uh, cocktail bars, things like that. With regards to the States, and you can already see what's happening there with alcoholic kombucha, I think people are looking for healthier alternatives to drinking beer, you know, and wine and cider and, and hard kombucha, as it's called in the States, is, um, is definitely something I think is going to continually grow. You see brands like June Shine, you see brands like Flying Embers, um, Boochcraft um, are some of the kind of top players in that world right now, Kombucha as well. And that's certainly something we're going to start exploring in the next couple of years. Um, we've already made once before actually an alcoholic kombucha using fig leaves and champagne yeast, and it was delicious. But um, I think that's probably going to enter the market in Europe uh, in the next couple of years. Um, probably kombucha that contains more than just, um, you know, probiotics or uh, those kinds of claims. I think you'll probably find kombucha um, like the brand Rowdy Mermaid that uses uh, nootropics and various kinds of plant-based extracts to optimize kind of human health and give you effects um, and, and health benefits that you wouldn't get from just a standard tea-based kombucha. So um, I think it's probably going to veer off in those directions. Um, but at the very least, um, at least in Europe, the first step is just educating the market about what kombucha even is um, before jumping to, uh, to all those different, you know, wild and wonderful concepts. So it's, it's, still, it's still very early days. Um, e- even looking at some of the, um, the data that's out there in the States, kombucha has, I think it's 5% household penetration. So, you know, 5% of, uh, of people in the United States might have a bottle of kombucha in their fridge and perhaps 10% of the population has ever heard the word before. You know, but if you go to places like California or Oregon or Washington or New York, um, you know, Boston, you know, on the East Coast, um, you're probably going to see a lot more people who know what kombucha is. So for us in Europe right now, the, really the primary goal is education um, and, mm-hmm. and just informing people about what kombucha is before taking it to the next level. Because um, it's really easy to get stuck in that mentality of everybody knows what kombucha is, so let's just take it to the next step. But you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be too far ahead of, of, of uh, people's awareness of, of what it is before doing that. But there's also a balance. You want to make sure that you are also innovating and, and attempting to be one of the first to market when it comes to new products and, and, and be willing to take a risk and take a leap, even if uh, it seems like a, you know, seems like a, a risk at the time. So that's something we've always been juggling with, with JAR, trying to, trying to innovate, but also trying to, um, educate and be realistic at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's very well said. And, and just to make it clear for the listeners, especially in other countries where, like the U.S., we can't enjoy JAR at the moment, is from what I've read, you very much see yourself, uh, the brand has been pitched as more of a premium brand. I mean, I think you distribute it to places like Harrods and, um, and so on. So you're aiming, by the sound of it, to be that, maybe not the champagne bottle, but that upper-end beverage. 
Um, is that true? Definitely. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have actually just a couple weeks ago initiated a, uh, a new pricing structure, which does make us more competitive in the market. Um, JAR will always remain a premium product, so it will never be the cheapest kombucha, um, nor will it be even close to the cheapest kombucha, but it, we want JAR to be enjoyed by everyone. We want people to have access to a premium brewed soft drink. Um, it made sense for us to initially start um, selling in places like Harrods and Harvey Nichols and Selfridges and, and, um, and nice cocktail bars and fancy hotels and stuff like that because I think that gained us a lot of press. Um, we connected with a, um, an audience that was uh, more open to new concepts, perhaps an audience that had visited parts of California or New York and had tried kombucha before in, in the States and knew what it was. And that was the early days. Um, that was something that we, um, we did to differentiate ourselves. And I think, actually, it's not really something that's been fully explored in the biggest kombucha market in the world, which is the States. Um, I can't say that I know of any premium kombucha brands. Perhaps there are now, but at least when we started in 2015 there, you know, you wouldn't find kombucha in the likes of, um, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue or five-star hotels or Michelin-starred restaurants. So, um, that was something that we purposefully chose to do and then work our way from, from the top down to a product that was accessible to, to more people. Um, yeah, so that sort of uh, that was sort of our strategy. Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, and I think what you said a second ago. Yeah, I think that is true. That um, premium, you know, th there's a different market over in the U.S. And one thing, of course, that I think is also true, and I don't know if you have this, but um, to kombucha on on draft or tap is, mm. you know, every pub yeah. in England could easily have a kombucha as an option for low alcohol. Um, option to, you know, the beers and ciders that are on tap. Is that something that you're looking sure. to distribute uh, draft kombucha? Well, we were the first to start offering on draft kombucha in Europe. So in 2015, before we even launched a bottled product, we opened a kombucha tap room um, called Jar Bar. And that was in Hackney Wick at our brewery uh, inside of our warehouse. And um, to be honest, it was too early. Uh, it was too early for the market. Nobody was interested in drinking kombucha on tap. And, and also, our flavor profile was, was really not um, – it wasn't as balanced as it is now, to say it nicely. <laughs> we, we didn't get the greatest reviews. Um, it was very, very vinegary. It was, uh, you know, overproduction of yeast. We, we just couldn't crack the flavor for, for about a year. So um, that uh, kombucha tap room eventually morphed into a cocktail bar, that cocktail bar eventually morphed into a venue. That venue morphed into a nightclub. So the place where we brewed kombucha and served it on tap eventually became um, quite a well-known uh, warehouse-style nightclub in London that was famous for bringing DJs from around the world and people could get kombucha. But kombucha on tap is not growing as quickly as we would have liked in the UK. Um, it's definitely something that's bigger in the States um, and you'll see it in many of the, you know, supermarkets now. You can fill up a growler and you can, um, mm -hmm. you know, you can go to various places and, and, and get larger batches of kombucha and fill your own vessels. But here in the U.K., it's still such a niche category that we're finding that we're not really getting the sales to justify continuing to do it for the short term. So actually, we're, we're going to stop doing on-draft kombucha for the foreseeable future. 
um, but look to, to re-engage with it maybe in the next 12 months and just see if we, we can jump back in when, when we think the market is ready for it. Um, because the cost of purchasing kegs, the cost uh, and, and sort of the, um, the time implications of you know, individually filling every single one of those kegs and uh, trying to get people to buy them, we found that a lot of kegs are actually going out of date. So, um, so we've decided to hold off on that for a while. But there's definitely room for growth there. Um, it, it, I just don't think it'll be for a year or, or two. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, this has been very insightful. Um, I wish you luck with your, uh, with your move to Belgium. It sounds like you're, you're kind of as good as up and running over there, and, and um, even the challenges of the current uh, you know, health situation are, are not slowing you down. So it's been great to hear from you, Adam, and, and good luck in the future. Thank you very much, man. Thanks for listening to Booch News. For more about kombucha, please visit boochnews.com.